a radio show that confesses Christ without confusing the law and the gospel. A radio show that takes scripture seriously without taking ourselves so seriously. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Is that Jesus can return at any time. He's not waiting for a Japanese nuclear power plant to melt down. No. The thing that's holding him back is his patience and love for lost humanity and nothing else. Uh, There there are no events that need to occur before Jesus comes back. And so seeing all the things that happen around us and saying, hey, hey, that means Jesus is coming. The answer is, no, no, that's wrong. That's the wrong way of looking at it. Jesus can come at any moment. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And Luther says the only way that uh, the pronoun me and God could be in the same sentence is by this verb, have mercy. I've got, I've given myself the new nickname. I've thrown aside all the other accolades that you toss at me so freely, Evan. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, they, uh, they, they feel like wine. Bull rider. Yeah, and uh, what else am I? I can't remember. I can't remember and them I've all either. Up. They're just too <laughs> numerous. <laughs> Another disaster waiting to happen. This is Table Talk Radio. <laughs> Welcome, Pastor. You ready for some more Table Talk Radio? Oh, oh, yeah. I'm always ready for more. Good, because today's broadcast includes the Praise Song Cruncher. Oh, man. <laughs> Aren't you excited? I, I know. I, it's I like, oh, to man. The swing by the liquor store on the way to church. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, it's good to get good and ready for the, the Praise Song Cruncher. But then after that, uh, you, you, can, uh, uh, you can sit back and relax because we're going to listen to Mark Pearson talk. He's going to give us a, uh, a response to the Dr. Scare, Dr. Price debate on the resurrection. So that'll be that'll be interesting. It'll be fun to hear Mark Pearson and his response, uh, especially to uh, Dr. Price. Yeah. Uh, so that's the lineup. Should we, should we go ahead and uh, talk about the praise song cruncher? Oh, we have buzzwords. I for- buzzwords. I've forgotten how this show works. Uh, the buzzwords are where we define a theological word uh, and try to work that into the conversation at some point during the show. Uh, my theological buzzword for you, Pastor. That's a tough one. I'll even I'll even give it to you in English. Ready? All right. Thank you. Ready. Law. <laughs> Law. Now the reason Ooh. I'm picking this as a buzzword is because I want to uh, make a uh, particular distinction when we talk about the law, uh, because uh, those um, in in who are privy to uh, Lutheran theology, we know that we talk about law and gospel all the time. Uh, the, the law is uh, that word of God that uh, shows us our condemnation before God because of our sin. Uh, in our actions, in our works, we see that we fall short of the glory of God and therefore deserve God's divine punishment. That's what we talk about uh, when we talk about the law in contrast to the gospel, which is the sure, pure promise of the forgiveness of sins won for us by Christ. Um, but also there's another way that we should understand the law, and that is, um, as we read it uh, times in the, the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, that the law there is the Torah, which means just the, the word of God. And so when uh, we read, for example, in Psalm 119, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, uh, we're not there talking about the law kind of law gospel kind, that, uh, that we're walking uh, like in a perfect obedience uh, of the Ten Commandments, because therefore, uh, who could who could be uh, who could be blessed according to the Psalm if that's what we was talking about? Uh, no, but instead it's talking about the Torah, so that would include both law and gospel. So blessed is he who walks uh, in in the counsel um, of, of all of God's word, including the forgiveness of sins won for us um, by Christ in the gospel. Right. So good luck getting that word in. Yeah, I don't know. I'll do it. Uh, I got one for you, by the way. Okay. Uh, we're, this word came up in conversation the other day, and someone was talking about what a nice word it was. Um, hymnody. Hymnody. And this will fit for the conversation, but mm. hymnody is, uh, is simply talking about hymns. I can't even remember why the person thought it was such a nice word. But maybe it's because when... Was um, it Daniel? No. No. Wasn't Isaac either? He was a member of the con- congregation. But they were talking about they they had come from a different church and they never talked about hymnody. Maybe that's what it is. I mean, it's recognizing that 
there's a particular art and a blessed role to the music that we sing in church and that we're reflecting on that and speaking about it. That's, I think that's what was going on. And so uh, they were telling me, you know, that, that word, hymnody, that's a really nice word. We're glad to use it. Yeah, that's good. Well, that might apply to the Praise Song Cruncher, uh, which is on the Table Talk Radio website. In fact, I was just digging around to find it. Uh, I see it here on page two of our articles uh, page on our, our website, the Praise Song Cruncher. And uh, you can download this in PDF form. I'm pulling it up right now. So there, this is a five-question diagnostic um, First one is, is Jesus mentioned, yes or no? And if yes, is it name or concept? Second one is, clarity is a song clear, like with the subject, verb, and object. Uh, mysticism, this is trying to uh, get a, a handle on the subjectivity or objectivity of the song. Uh, then this law gospel question we just got done talking about, does the song uh, proclaim the law and its sternness and the gospel and its sweetness? And then lastly, is there any explicit false teaching? Uh, so you can print this off, follow along, uh, or give it to your uh, praise song guru at your local church, um, whichever you prefer. You can print it off. I'm I'm doing the show half blind. I probably have, all, for the first time in my whole life, have all my attention on the recording since I can't get on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I've, uh, I've been praying for this day for... For the, whatever the two and a half years we've been doing this show, Lord, just just have Pastor focus on the show just once, please. And uh, he, the Lord does answer prayer. How about yeah, that? Yeah, so sometimes sometimes he does uh, uh, sharpen our focus through natural disasters, <laughs> like losing your internet connection or listening to Table Talk Radio. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the uh, the fir- both of these uh, praise songs we're going to crunch today. Uh, How, by the way, I can connect to the you by the microphone, but not by this computer, is still confounding me. This is like magic. I'm telling you, it was, it was uh, an answer to prayer. <laughs> you know, he can part the Red Sea, he can shut down the internet, but still make the the, the radio equipment work. <laughs> True enough. Well, both of these songs uh, were submitted to us by request. Uh, the first one is called Cannons, and it's by Phil Wickham. Clouds, a strange and lovely sound. I hear it in the thunder and rain. It's ringing in the skies like cannons in the night. The music of the universe plays. The song continues, beautiful and free song of galaxies. It's reaching far beyond the Milky Way. Let's join in with the sound. Come on, let's sing it loud as the music of the universe plays. All glory, here we have the repetition. All glory, honor, power is yours, amen. All glory, honor, power is yours, amen. All glory, honor, power is yours forever, amen. Uh, so thank you, Andrew, for sending that sending that in to us. You can send us your praise song requests at questions at tabletalkradio.org. Do you know if that was a, hey, we played this in church, can you crunch it one? Or was that a, hey, I heard this on the radio, can you crunch it one? Uh doesn't say either way. Hmm. You don't, you don't think this would be a, a church one? Well, I don't know. I think it probably I mean, it is. it could be. I just don't know. I don't know. Don't worry, our, our Table Talk Radio listeners are on it. Last time we, we brought that question, I got a couple emails saying that, no, no, this is this is in uh, this is in our church. So uh, if you have sung Canons by Phil Wickham in uh, church, send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. Okay, so let's, let's start crunching this. Is Jesus yeah. mentioned? No Jesus on purpose on this song, I think. Now, I'm working half blind. You did send me the lyrics to this thing, but... They're locked up in the natural disaster of. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am confirming that Jesus is not mentioned. Now, why do you say on purpose? 
because it's about creation. This is about the song, the the canon, the canons is the name of the song. Yes, it's about the canons that echo through the universe. It's about the songs of the stars and the moons, and uh, or moon, or I don't know. I guess there's more than one moon, just not for us. There's one moon that's for you. The rest of the moons are not <laughs> that, for you unless you're on moon. Jupiter or whatever. But um, the moons and the planets and the stars are singing this, and the thunder, and the thunder rolls, and uh, and all this sort of thing. Now, this is uh, biblical, sort of. In I mean, there's a few passages. For uh, the one I'm thinking of is Psalm 19. Uh, where it'll say the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, but that's all they can declare. The song, the song of uh, uh, the song of creation, the song of the universe about God is very monotonous, and it's not particularly good uh, news. The, I mean, the song. Remember the song that creation sings about God has three things in it: that God is good, big, and mad. Hmm. <laughs> uh, that's what creation tells us about God. That's what natural knowledge reveals. Uh, and so this is a natural knowledge song. It's going to tell us these sort of things. Although it doesn't get to the mad part, just good and big. Well, no, because the whole point is to uh, that people would stay, stay at your church. And if you're going to talk about a, a mad God, well, they're not going to be in your church too long. <laughs> okay, well, we'll continue with this praise song crunch right after this commercial break. Send us your praise song requests, questions at tabletalkradio.org. You see, you're not making Christianity better. You're just making rock and roll worse. This is Table Talk Radio. <laughs> I can only eat margarine. It's all I can do. Because I don't like butter or butter substitute. I can only eat margarine. Yeah. Surrounded by some biscuits are on a piece of Welcome back to Table Talk Radio. Did you know our listeners are sending in uh, bumper music suggestions now? My work as a co-host of this program is almost done. I mean, I Yeah, hey, I achieved that point about 2 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we know about that. <laughs> I can only eat margarine. What a great song. <laughs> Surrounded by biscuits. <laughs> I like that guy. Tim Hawkins? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's got oh, a lot of stuff out there. That guy's funny. Uh, I like the one. I'm against humor. It's a it's a parody of uh, Jesus Take the Wheel. Oh, yeah. Cletus <laughs> Take the Wheel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's, he's fishing and pulls pulls a muscle in his upper thigh, so he throws the fish, fishing rod up. <laughs> <laughs> Got a cramp in my upper thigh. <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, we're not crunching parody songs. We're crunching praise songs. And uh, so far, this song, uh, Cannons by Phil Wickham, uh, is not mentioned Jesus. The second question is, what's the second question? Clarity. Yeah. Uh, so is the song clear with uh, sentences and subjects and objects and verbs? It and seemed stuff. to me like it was clear. I mean, it seemed to me that he was working with sentences. I mean, I, I couldn't, uh, again, I'm still blind. I said, uh, so call up Carlos Hernandez at Lutheran World Relief and tell him that I've get, lost my internet connection. <laughs> we need an emergency response team to, <laughs> to Hope Aurora. Uh, it's, it's like being crippled. <laughs> it's fall- I know. I mean, imagine being a pastor when you didn't have the internet. You have to, you know... Actually, Paper? Pull, pull out books and read them and things like that. Whatever. Uh, it's falling from the clouds, <laughs> a strange and lovely sound. I hear it in the thunder and rain. It's ringing like the skies. You know, oh, what, what's interesting about that's this... That's all pretty bad. Yeah. I mean... I mean, okay, so these are sentences, but but they're not uh, addressing what the antecedent of the pronouns are. Mm-hmm, What's mm-hmm, falling that's right. from the clouds? Yeah, that's right. That's another trick to do it. I mean, you just so you use pronouns in place of nouns. That's a step towards abstraction. 
Yep. Yep. So would that would that be addressed in the clarity question or the mysticism question? No, no, the clarity question. Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, the antecedent to the pronoun is this uh, is this universal the, is the is the hymn that the universe is singing, which reminds me for some reason. Have you know my favorite movie, The Kung Fu Panda? Yes, I, I, I happen one. to know. I think I called you in time, and you spent five minutes quoting from that movie. Yeah, I, that's I put right. the phone down and went to the bathroom and came back, and you're still quoting it. <laughs> There's this one spot where it says that it is said that the dragon warrior can live off one drop of dew and the power of the universe. <laughs> and the <laughs> Kung Fu Panda says, I guess my body doesn't know it's a Kung Fu Panda yet. I'm going to need a lot more than dew and universe juice. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this song is about, the universe juice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to the question of Mrs. Oh, wait. Uh, so a number, uh, what do you say, like a... Uh, a uh, ten is very clear. One is obscure. Like a four, so, three. Well, I wouldn't put it on the upside of it because I do have an idea what it's talking about. So six. Okay. That's my my generosity. Mysticism. Is this a mystic song? That's an interesting question. Very very interesting question. I mean, this song uh, is not a Christian song. There's nothing Christian about it. There, there, this could be sung by uh, a Jew, uh, by a Muslim. By a, I don't know, I mean, even Eastern religions? I mean, there's no mention that God is one. Maybe even that Indian tribe that we played with one time that said that uh, the Lord's Supper is to uh, realize your innate goodness. Oh, remember that? Yeah. Oh, I remember that. I, I had blocked it out of my mind. <laughs> someone someone came up to church the other day and reminded me something we had just recorded on the show, and I had no idea what they were talking about. And I said, "It's like a re- these every show is like a, is a repressed memory. <laughs> Someday I'm going to go to therapy, and all the stuff we talked about in the show is going to come out, and I'm going to look out uh, when that happens." Yeah. But anyway, uh, what are we talking about? I already blocked out the... <laughs> mysticism. mysticism. Oh, yeah. So I don't know if this is a mystic song. I mean, it's a... Uh, I, I'm I think it is. I'm to know that stuff. Tell me what you... Yeah, well, why again, think I think this this move to abstraction... Um, I mean, I okay, you said, okay, it's the hymn that's falling from the clouds. Uh, uh, I hear it in the, the thunder and rain. Um, but, I mean, I... I just think it's so abstract. Beautiful and free, song of galaxies. It's reaching far beyond the Milky Way. Let's join with the sound. Come on, let's sing it loud as the music of the universe plays. Um, I mean, it's certainly not delivering concrete realities. It's yeah, it, well, see, that's the thing that's throwing me off. But I think I got it now. I think because it's it is talking about the things of this universe, first article stuff: sun, moon, stars, land, clouds, thunderstorms, and stuff. I mean, so, it's, so it has this, but it's it's a naturalistic mysticism rather than a supernatural mysticism. It's more like these guys that you know they go and they sit out in in the fields and meditate and try to and and try to listen to the to the sound of the of creation sort of thing you see so that most mysticism is about kind of transcending creation but this this is a kind of a a creaturely mysticism that which is trying to hear the secret voice of the, the secret song of the universe and join in on it hmm. and, and there's you something would... very very interesting because a lot because when you start singing with the universe in this song you're singing holy great and mighty how does that thing go uh yeah, all glory, honor, power is your is yours, Amen. Now see, this is this is the crazy thing is that that sounds an awful lot like, um, uh, the songs that we hear in the Revelation. Uh, all glory, holy, 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 God who is and was and is to come. Um, you are worthy. Um, blessing and power and honor be to Him who sits on the throne. But then you know what it says in the Revelation. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. See? So that this song of praise is to Jesus who died on the cross. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive power, glory, and honor, for you created all things. By your will they were created. That song is always followed up by the fact that you have made us kings and priests of God by your blood. Worthy is the land who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom. But the whole discussion of the lamb, uh, Jesus who died for us, is just completely missing. 
Yeah. You, I mean, if the if uh, all creation is crying out, I mean, Luke 19 says that uh, you know if, if these become silent, the the stones will cry out and and glory to God. Uh, but you would think then that that the stones would be crying out uh, the Lord's name, for example. <laughs> yep, that's right. That they they're gonna be at least uh, crying out what the people would were crying out, you know. Sure. Yeah. Stones probably do better, which means they're gonna be talking about Jesus. Yep. So, uh, law gospel. Mm, the the closest it gets to to kind of have any sort of useful law is this. Uh, I am unworthy. How does it say it? I am unworthy, but still, you love me. Um. There's a line in there like that. Looking for it here. Oh yeah, I'm so unworthy, but still you love me. Forever my heart will sing of how great you are. Yeah. Uh, that's as close it gets to as it gets to law gospel. Um, but uh, it doesn't but really do the yeah. Job, I was gonna say, it? but still, as you mentioned before, this would be something that any religion could really sing. Mm-hmm. So no law gospel. Yeah. So explicit false teaching. Well, again, this suffers from the praise song disease of not really having much teaching. I mean, okay, now we should say this. Look, if you want to sing about natural knowledge of God, that's fine. I mean, it's biblical, like we said. But you got to follow the way that Psalm 19 does it. I mean, you eventually got to get to the Word, uh, which gives to us Jesus. Um, it's got to be, it's got to, it's, it's, it's got to be part of the divine service. Because if you don't have any, if you don't have Jesus, then you don't have, you don't have God coming to, to. To forgive you and help you and serve you, etc. Yeah. So uh, with we just have about a minute left here, so we don't have time what? to go to uh, another praise song. Uh, but in this minute, then tell us um, tell us exactly what we should be looking for in in right hymnody that we should be singing in the church. Well, look, I, I will grant you a couple of things. One is that hymns are always in context, so you well, first might of all, not... do I get uh, points for uh, using the? Oh, you, you, oh, yeah, I guess you do. Ah, Five hundred. It's been a while since I've got 500 for the buzzard. Okay, continue. Oh, oh you've totally thrown me off. <laughs> Sorry. I, I've already I've already repressed the question. What <laughs> should we be looking for in hymnody? Oh, you, you, we do. We'll, con, we'll concede that music is in context, so you you don't necessarily have to think that a hymn has to do everything. But it would be nice if the Lord's Christians would sing about Jesus. So it would be nice to have uh, Jesus mentioned, and it would be nice to, if you're going to mention Jesus, to have him forgiving our sins. Um, so you got to have us having sins to forgive and Jesus somehow dying to forgive them and save us and rescue us. It just would be nice to include those things in the um, in the hymn. And it'd be nice if you, if you used the tools that the Lord has given us to communicate, uh, like sentences. So I think all those things would be good to have in your hymns. Right. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we, we, we speak back to God the things he's spoken to us. And what he has spoken to us is his, his love and mercy he has for sinners uh, through Christ. And so that's what we're going to sing back to God. And to have that absent in our, in our hymnody, to have that absent in the songs that we sing, is to have that absent in our theology. And that's, that's a much bigger problem. Well, yep. uh, in the next half hour of the program, we're going to be joined by Mark Pearson. And we're going to be talking about, did Jesus rise from the dead in light of the debate? Don't go away. Part-time hosts, full-time nonsense. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. That's the truth. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio, coming off of the Praise Song Cruncher. Yeah. In the next segment of the program, we're going to be discussing this debate we had. In case you didn't hear it, you can go to our website at tabletalkradio.com. Dot org and click on the podcast page. We had a debate a couple weeks ago with uh, Dr. David Scare and Dr. Robert Price, and the topic was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And to get a reaction from that is Mark Pearson. Mark Pearson has a Master's of Arts degree in Reformation Theology from Concordia 
University in Irvine, California, and is a recent graduate with a Master's of Divinity from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome, Mark Pearson. Thank you, Reverend Evan Gagline. Yeah, all right. Uh, I'm not used to that yet, so I need to, you know, Reverend, Reverend Mark Pearson, too. Yeah, I know, um, but, you know, once we get ordained, then we get the magic, so we shouldn't flaunt it too much. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so you uh, had the opportunity to, to listen to this debate between Dr. Scare and Dr. Price. What are your initial reactions overall uh, of the debate? Uh, well, my overall impression, um, to be honest, two things came to mind right off the bat. Uh, first, I was very thankful that I have actually been trained in apologetics. And uh, second, it reminded me, actually, of how the educated unbeliever can act very uneducated when rejecting the New Testament. And yet, as typical, he does so while thinking that he actually holds the intellectual high ground. Um, But more specifically, regarding the back and forth between the two scholars, um, unfortunately, I would say David Scare had a few disadvantages. He began by making an actual opening statement, like he was supposed to, setting the groundwork to let everyone know what was at stake regarding the resurrection. But Robert Price jumped right into his argument against the resurrection. This somewhat paved the way for what was to follow. Scare tracked particular trains of thought in more detail, causing him to cover less ground in terms of quantity of arguments, though not necessarily in terms of quality of arguments, whereas Price had more of a shotgun approach, throwing up skeptical mud at the wall and hope that some of it will stick. Scare was more thoughtful and tempered in most of his remarks, well, Price came across as smug and zealous. So, tactfully, Price tried to make his position appear more persuasive simply by acting like he had already won the debate before it even began. Now, like you, Evan, uh, I actually had the advantage of learning from Dr. Scare in the classroom, so I know more or less how he thinks and how he argues. But to someone who hasn't had that experience, Price may have appeared the victor. That said, I was actually rather unimpressed with Price's arguments overall. Price took the approach of, well, I'm going to overwhelm you with the sheer number of things I dismiss as false. Look how many things I can call into question. And so that makes it hard to perceive, or sorry, hard to provide a uh, concise analysis of his side of the debate. And actually, Evan, as you and I talked about earlier, uh, giving a concise response to Price, it's kind of like trying to give a concise response to the movie Religulous with Bill Maher. Um, it's all over the map, and it relies a bit on ad hominem attacks or making fun more than anything else. Uh, Price himself didn't use ad hominems too much. Uh, they're there, but he didn't use it all the time. Um, but he has quite a bit of faulty reasoning, and many of his supposed arguments were really just unproved assertions that ultimately rest on pretty shaky ground. Uh, let's go ahead and listen to part of Dr. Price's opening argument uh, and then get your reaction to it on the other side. Here's Dr. Price. Should we believe the gospel Easter stories or reports of fact? There is simply no reason to accept at face value anything, much less everything, that some ancient narrative tells us. If we're going to believe in the resurrection simply because an ancient text narrates it, we might as well believe the story of Odysseus and the Cyclops. Why not? And this has nothing to do with whether there is a God or whether there can be miracles. Suppose there are real miracles. Does that mean every story of a miracle must be true? We often hear that we ought to believe the resurrection occurred because there is no other way to explain how Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was found empty by the women disciples when they arrived on Easter morning, etc. It couldn't have been the wrong tomb because of so-and-so. The disciples couldn't have stolen the corpse because of this and that. But this is all wrong-headed. To try to prove the punchline of the Easter story, namely the resurrection, from the preparatory steps written to lead the reader up to it is a sleight-of-hand trick. It is like trying to prove the Emerald City is real, because otherwise, where would the yellow brick road lead? Today's resurrection apologetics are really yesterday's. They made sense in the 17th century context of debate between orthodox apologists and the now extinct tribe of liberal Protestant rationalists. These were the theological oddballs who believed the Bible was inerrant, but that God carefully kept to Newtonian natural laws and never suspended them to work miracles, 
whether a miracle of resurrection or of biblical inspiration. Rationalists weren't historical critics, though they did not believe in a miraculous inspiration of a written text. They assumed the text was accurate. Thus, they required some non-miraculous excuse for automatically taking the accuracy of the text for granted, even if it were just as contrived as the swoon theory. So, for miraculous inerrancy, they substituted the arbitrary claim of eyewitness authorship of the whole Bible. They affirmed eyewitness authorship merely because they needed to, just like today's apologists. But historians do not approach any text or story with such rosy lenses. They tentatively accept as true only those accounts which can be independently corroborated. That's Dr. Robert Price in a debate with David Scare on Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? Now, Mark, it sounds like Dr. Price says the historical account found in the Gospels just can't be reliable because, well, it's too hard to believe. Yeah, that's part of his argument. Um, I mean, here we have Price trying to paint a picture of just how naive you have to be to believe the resurrection. He says there's no reason to accept at face value ancient narratives and that not every account of a miracle should be believed as true. Well, fair enough, um, but I know of no one who, d who would disagree with that. He's depicting Christians as though we have all been swindled by a snake oil salesman, and we're just too gullible or too dumb to read the fine print. Price is essentially claiming that all Christians are fideists. They believe based on nothing at all. You can see this in his question about Odysseus and the Cyclops. His argument amounts to, we don't believe in the myths of Homer, and they were ancient narratives, so we likewise shouldn't believe in the Gospels, which are also ancient narratives. But this is a false analogy. He's mixing apples and oranges here. Not all ancient narratives are of the same kind. Homeric myth is just that, myth. It's a poem written hundreds of years after the supposed events it references. Only a few ancient copies still exist today, and these all date hundreds of years after Homer is supposed to have lived. What is more, the Greeks themselves doubted the truthfulness of their own myth. And nobody went to the grave because they claimed to witness firsthand the Cyclops being outsmarted by Odysseus in the face of persecution. All four Gospels, however, were written more or less according to the standards of their day for historical biographies. Uh, Richard Burridge, a classicist, has shown this quite clearly in his book entitled What Are the Gospels? He compared ancient biographies with the Gospels and found that this is what they are. Not myths, not legends, not romances, but historical biographies. They were all composed within one or at the most two generations after the events they record. Uh, in the debate, Price says they're second century documents. I don't know how he comes to that. Uh, we have about 2,000 early copies of the Gospels, and we're discovering more all the time. Many of the first Christians, including those who saw and heard Jesus firsthand, including those who claimed to see him resurrected, were willing to die for this claim. If the eleven disciples and Paul made the whole thing up, they know it's a lie. Does it make sense that all of those who were put to death for claiming to see Jesus risen from the death, that not a single one of them confessed to making it up, even in the face of a brutal, torturous death at the hands of the Romans? Does it make sense that, as Jews, from their perspective, they were willing to embrace eternal hellfire for purposely misleading people about salvation, about the identity of the Messiah, and about the very identity of God himself? Christ says the Gospels are made up, but he pays no attention to the question of whether or not the authors had the means, motive, or opportunity to pull off the hoax. So, yeah, I mean, Homer's Odyssey and the New Testament Gospels are both ancient narratives, but there are only solid reasons for accepting one of them as history and not myth. To speak like Price does, one could say there's simply no reason to accept anything on television at face value. If you're going to believe the evening news is real, why not believe Family Guy is real too? And of course you notice that Wizard of Oz reference. That is another tactic to get us to equate the Gospels with fairy tales, seeing them as one and the same. He said you can't argue from point A to point B without first assuming point A. And to do that, you have to buy into the narrative. Meaning you can't argue for the resurrected Jesus unless you first have a dead and buried Jesus. So even Jesus' death and burial are suspects for price. 
but the execution of Jesus is mentioned in quite a few non-Christian sources. Typically, all historians will say Jesus was crucified, and his burial is one of the most consistent and most glaring aspects of the account. Why go to the trouble to say that Jesus died and was buried? Why name the owner of the tomb, much less say it's a wealthy man who had a prominent position among the Jews? These would be horrible blunders if they were not accurate, for the location of the burial would be well known, and anyone in Jerusalem could take a short walk and see for themselves whether or not that tomb was empty. But Price makes it sound like it's an impossible game you're trying to play, where you first have to establish the Wright brothers existed before you can talk about 9-11. Otherwise, you're just assuming willy-nilly that air transportation is possible as part of the 9-11 narrative, thus jumping from point A to point B without ever proving point A. But of course, Price uses an analogy of fiction to make his point when he doesn't have to, only to try to equate Jesus' ministry with talking scarecrows and flying monkeys. All right, let's take a break right there when we get back from this commercial break. We're going to talk more with Mark Pearson uh, to this reaction of Dr. Robert Price in the debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? Stay tuned to this commercial break. More with Mark Pearson on Table Talk Radio right after this. in a way in the English language to indicate we are using the singular you. But thank you for listening to Table Talk Radio. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio, here with Mark Pearson talking about the debate with Dr. David Scare and Dr. Robert Price. Pastor, Miller, Pastor Wilson, are you still over there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Just haven't heard from you for a while. Busy playing rock band. Oh, okay. Well, let you do your thing. Uh, let's get back uh, with Mark Pearson. Um, uh, going back to his opening statement, we heard the clip before the commercial break. Um, what, what do you make of his assertion that all the apologetic arguments are outdated and directed towards liberal rationalists? Yeah, in that uh, powerhouse clip you have there, um, Price goes on to say that the apologists living today uh, are living at the wrong time, for they merely recycle arguments that have their place really in the 17th century, when Orthodox Christians debated liberal Christians over the question of miracles and the inerrancy of the scriptures. Um, This strikes me as terribly disingenuous. Two monumental works on the resurrection have been released in the past decade, and both are based on fresh, up-to-date scholarship and both cover new territory not addressed by previous apologists. Uh, N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, in 2003, and Michael Lacana's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, published just last year in 2010. Um, Price knows of both these works, but he acts like apologists have had nothing new to say in about 400 years. Yet Price himself relies almost entirely on outdated scholarship for the framework and presuppositions of his overall argument. In the debate, he mentioned David Strauss, who critiqued the Gospel's portrayal of Jesus nearly 200 years ago. Strauss has since been debunked numerous times over. Price also relies heavily on Rudolf Bultmann, which is where Price gets the notion that he keeps repeating throughout the debate that Christians borrowed from pagan beliefs to create their mythical Jesus. Bultmann's thought dominated the field of biblical studies in the mid-20th century, but has since been repeatedly challenged and often rejected in light of new finds and new scholarship. So Price wants to dismiss all apologists with the sweep of the hand by characterizing them as outdated, but he himself is dependent on scholars and schools of thought that are outdated. And then next he makes that claim that during the 17th century, in place of supernatural inerrancy of the Bible, apologists substituted eyewitness authorship only because they needed it, he says, as a way to ward off the critics and give the text some sort of legitimate backing. This is simply untrue. The Gospel of John itself says, comes from an eyewitness. Price, of course, says this is an 
uh, interpolation, and we'll talk more about interpolations later. Um, but the Gospel of Luke also says the author, while he wasn't an eyewitness, he carefully investigated everything that came from the eyewitnesses. Paul, of course, claims to be an eyewitness. James certainly wouldn't have been ignorant of his own brother. And not too much later, in the second century, church fathers such as Papias and Irenaeus tell us that Matthew and John were eyewitnesses and wrote their Gospels. Mark wrote down what Peter recorded, and Peter, of course, was an eyewitness. And Luke was a companion of Paul. So we see that the eyewitness tradition began at the earliest stages in the Christian movement. It wasn't invented 1,600 years later by certain apologists who were frantically trying to find some way to make the gospel seem more believable. What is more, historians of the first century had standards for what constituted reliable history, and either being an eyewitness or having consulted the eyewitnesses was one of them. You see this in the classical Greek authors like Xenophon or Polybius. But also Lucian of Samosata indicated that ancient historians were very conscious about discerning between truth and error, the importance of checking one's sources, and having eyewitness testimony. Uh, I would recommend Richard Balcom's book on this, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So the notion that Price says that the eyewitnesses were not important back then is totally bogus. Okay, then before we move on to another clip, what do you make of uh, Dr. Price's claim at the end of that last one, uh, that historians only accept the accounts um, be, uh, historians only accept the accounts that can be independently co corroborated? Oh, that's, that's a really good question, because it brings up a point that um, I don't think was really hashed out in the debate. Um, well, first of all, it's not true. Um, yes, independent corroboration is a means for determining what material should be trusted, but it's not the only means. Um, but even so, uh, we have four historical biographies all claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, not to mention the rest of the New Testament. But what Price doesn't tell you here is that he's not operating as a historian, but as a member of the Jesus Seminar. The seminar is best known for voting on the content of the Gospels with different colored beads, each indicating how likely a saying or deed of Jesus is. Um, but what most people don't seem to know is that the hypercritical methodology of the Jesus Seminar for determining authenticity is not accepted by historians. Uh, for example, they say, this is the Jesus Seminar, they say that Jesus only spoke in parables, he never quoted the Old Testament, he never referred to himself as the Messiah, as the Son of Man. He never spoke of God's judgment. He never gave long sermons. He never predicted the future or spoke of his impending death. And he never performed miracles, including rising from the dead. Now, everything I just said there, that is their starting point. From here, from that starting point, keeping those guidelines, then they did the voting. So with that approach, your conclusion is embedded in your premises. Why vote at all? You've already decided what Jesus said and did without the colored beads. And then going back to uh, independent corroboration, which Price uh, says he praises so highly, uh, the Jesus Seminar, which Price is a member of, said that the Gospel of Thomas contains independent material about Jesus that isn't in the New Testament Gospel. But the entire Gospel of Thomas takes place after the resurrection. So while I don't believe in the Gospel of Thomas, or that it's a legitimate source for Jesus material, the Jesus Seminar does, and this source also mentions Jesus as having risen from the dead. Uh, and this is actually a point where I thought David Scare did a decent job of saying, look, if someone was there when I wasn't, and they tell me what happened, I'm not going to be skeptical of their story unless they give me a good reason to be skeptical of it. Price wants to say that because this story about Jesus contains a resurrection, it automatically becomes unbelievable. But that is a philosophical presupposition against miracles. As much as Price tried to say the issue is not whether or not miracles occur, he has nonetheless made up his mind before investigating the evidence that they don't occur. But that is not how a historian is supposed to operate. Historians operate inductively. They gather the facts and then form a conclusion. Those who operate deductively, like Price, form a conclusion, and then force the facts into it. All right, let's uh, hear another clip from Dr. Price. This, again, is from his opening statement. Here he provides some alternative explanations for an empty tomb. But even if one were inclined to take the gospel Easter stories as basically sound up till the resurrection appearances, these very texts introduce two 
viable alternative explanations. One, the tomb was found empty because the body, having been only stashed there for the moment since the Sabbath was coming on, those who buried him returned and took the body away before the women got there, and no one knew where to tell them to look. Two, people who claimed they had seen the risen Jesus had actually seen somebody else, and only later inferred it must have been Jesus, though admittedly he did not look like Jesus, and he didn't actually say he was Jesus, come to think of it. This happens in Luke 24 with the Emmaus disciples, in John 21 with the disciples on the lake of Tiberias, and in the long ending of Mark. Such an admission totally vitiates the credibility of the resurrection story. It would have been just like Mark 6:14 and 8:27 through 28, where John the Baptist's disciples were seeing a still living Jesus, but jumped to the conclusion that they were seeing a risen Baptist. Imagine trying to identify a criminal this way in court. It might seem fanciful to raise these two possibilities, except that they are raised by the texts themselves, where they seem to remain as an echo of a guilty conscience. Finally, suppose for the sake of argument that we were stuck with a stubbornly factual empty tomb, which we are not, would we be justified in concluding the only explanation was a miraculous resurrection? No, we would not. That would be like saying that the only way to explain the building of the pyramids was space aliens with tractor beams. We'd only be trying to answer one mystery by an even bigger mystery, which is no explanation at all. We would just have to leave it an open question. That is, if there were a problem there, which is not. I realize that because of the larger issues involved, it is very hard, very nearly impossible for Christian believers to entertain the possibility that the resurrection did not happen, or even that in any case his history cannot confirm the resurrection. One might admit it cannot be proven, as some do, and continue to affirm the resurrection by faith alone, that is to say, by sheer willpower. Do that if you feel you have to, but at least do not let your will to believe cause you to make false claims about what history does or does not prove. All right, Mark, we are short on time, but uh, begin a response here to Dr. Price, and we'll take the rest into the podcast. Okay, well, that was quite a, uh, another shotgun blast from Price. So um, <laughs> the main point, uh, and yeah, I, I guess I, I'll have to go over, but... Um, Starting off, um, Price says these texts uh, themselves give us two viably alternative explanations. The body was moved somewhere else that the Christians didn't know about, uh, and a case of mistaken identity, where, yes, someone was seen, but it wasn't really Jesus. Um, first of all, this is a very good example of something Price does throughout the entire debate. Uh, it's often called the fallacy of selective attention, or, in layman's terms, Price is cherry-picking. He's relying on what the texts say only when they suit him or can be twisted to support his position. But whenever the texts don't back up Price's view, he's quick to say the texts are unreliable or they're fiction or there have been interpolations. He is simply inconsistent. You can't cite as authoritative evidence reports about women going to the tomb or disciples seeing someone on the Emmaus Road when it supports your view, and then at the same time undermine the authority of those very texts you just based your case on. Uh, Second, just because the reports initially include uh, women wondering if the body was moved and people not recognizing Jesus right away, these are not viable explanations of what happened to Jesus, because these very, very reports continue and make it abundantly clear that the only explanation that's viable is the physical resurrection of Jesus. Mary Magdalene and John and the Emmaus disciples in Luke became absolutely certain that it's Jesus. The women in Matthew meet Jesus as they're leaving the tomb. They talk with him. They fall at his feet and worship him. Why include this if it's false, especially since a woman's testimony was inadmissible in Jewish court? Jesus eats fish with his disciples. He invites Thomas to touch his hands and his side. Paul says over 500 people saw Jesus alive and makes the point of letting his readers know that most of them are still alive, meaning go ask them yourselves if you want. These are not reports of a missing body or a case of mistaken identity. If either of those scenarios was actually the case, why not go dig up dead Jesus and show him to the whole world? 
parade the body down the streets of Jerusalem and put an end to the Christian movement once and for all. All right, Mark, I'm going to have to cut you off right there. Uh, but don't worry, if uh, you're listening on the radio, you can go to tabletalkradio.org and uh, listen to the rest of this uh, broadcast of Table Talk Radio on the Internet. Go to tabletalkradio.org and check out the podcast tab. And this is show number 151 and listen to the rest of this interview. For those of you already listening on the podcast, you can just stay tuned right after the closing theme music. And we'll conclude this conversation with Mark Pearson uh, here on Table Talk Radio. Mark, thanks for joining us on Table Talk Radio. Thank you, Evan. It was a pleasure. Where the points are like law with no gospel. Meaningless. Hey, that's my buzzword, Evan. You've Did you been listening that? to Table Talk Radio. The views expressed on this show are that of the hosts and do not reflect the views or opinions of this station. We would like your feedback on today's show. Call us toll-free, 1-800-385-SOLA. That's 1-800-385-SOLA. Or send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. You can listen again to this show or any of our past shows on our website, tabletalkradio.org. Thanks for listening and tune in again next time to Table Talk Radio. Thanks for staying with us for Table Talk Radio Extra Innings. Uh, here we're still with Mark Pearson responding to that uh, last clip at the end of the last show about Robert Price. Uh, Mark, uh, Price there brings up some uh, alternative situations for the uh, explanation for the the empty tomb. Uh, yeah, and I mean, he started off by saying um, the women think that someone moved the dead body uh, or um, the disciples on the road to Emmaus can't tell who they're seeing, so we can't say that it's Jesus. Um, now, from that, for Price, um, if any alternate scenario is possible, just possible, he thinks that thus follows that no one explanation is more probable than the rest. Well, that's simply not the case, and it's not how historians operate. It is legitimate in history to infer the best explanation based on the available evidence. That's called abductive reasoning. And when you take into account all the evidence and don't rule out the supernatural ahead of time, what scenario is most probable? Well, Price says that none of them are. Or he actually says, um, well, I don't know what's most probable, but it certainly isn't the resurrection. And then he uses that example that you heard um, of the pyramids, saying we might as well believe aliens built the pyramids if we're going to say Jesus rose from the dead. But again, he's acting like there is no evidence that makes any one scenario more compelling than another. So that's just plain false. Um, by the way, and it wasn't in that last clip, but um, Price and Scare talked a bit about the guard at the tomb as reported in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Price tried to say that this evidence, um, or this is evidence that the whole thing is fiction because the guard account isn't found anywhere else. But Scare actually has a stronger position on this. All the Gospel writers, even if they're eyewitnesses, relied on some sources for their material. In this case, Matthew was working with a source that the others weren't, and he included the report of the guards because of his intentions regarding the Jews. His biography of Jesus was written such that it's also a polemic or an apologetic against the unbelieving Jews, as Scare said. The use of different sources is also the most plausible explanation of why John's Gospel differs quite a bit from the Synoptic Gospels. And what do we find in all four of them? A risen Jesus. Now, to use Price's own line of reasoning, this very realistic notion that the resurrection accounts differ on certain points because the authors were all drawing from slightly different traditions or sources is a viable alternative explanation to Price's view, and thus totally eviscerates his claim that their lack of congruity shows them to be fiction. Scare roughly pointed out the same thing. If the Gospels match each other too much, then the authors are guilty of collusion or conspiracy. If the Gospels differ too much, then the authors can't be trusted and they made things up. It looks like a lose-lose situation. But in fact, this is exactly how historical reporting is done. Take any four news sources about a recent event, like uh, the tornadoes in Missouri. Will they repeat each other on certain points? Yes. Will they differ on certain points? Yes. Does that mean there were no, there were no tornadoes in Missouri? No. Or take an example closer to the time of Jesus. And I use this one a lot because um, with people's ignorance of history, this is one, one thing they seem to know. Uh, we have three ancient accounts of the death of Julius Caesar, none of which was written by an eyewitness. 
One says that Caesar was stabbed 35 times, but two reports say he was stabbed 23 times. One has Caesar talking to Brutus, while the other two don't report that Caesar said anything to Brutus. One has onlookers horrified at the whole thing, while the other two make no mention of onlookers. Another says Caesar's body was carried home by slaves, while the other two end their account with dead Caesar lying outside the theater. So what are we to make of these? Shall we say the whole thing was made up? That it's just as likely that Caesar was abducted by aliens? Or that if you believe in the classic narrative of Caesar's betrayal and death, then you might as well believe that Han Solo was really betrayed by Lando Calrissian at a real place called Cloud City? And of course, Shakespeare turned this narrative about Caesar into a play. Doesn't that in itself tell you that it's false, a fairy tale? Are you now going to believe everything Shakespeare wrote as literally true? Or will we go so far as to say that Julius Caesar never existed? This is actually what Price says about Jesus. The most he's willing to concede is that Jesus may have existed, but unless someone discovers his diary or his skeleton, we'll never know. How's that for hypercritical skepticism? Price may be a biblical scholar of some kind, but a historian he certainly is not. Now, what's your reaction to Dr. Price's last remarks uh, there that it is only a Christian's commitment to faith that allows him to believe in the resurrection? Yeah, I'm actually glad you picked the clip that ended with this. Um, Price is really sticking his foot in his mouth here, whether he knows it or not. Uh, he tries to provide a psychological explanation for why Christians remain intractably committed to their faith in the risen Jesus, despite Price's supposedly uh, open and shut case against it. And elsewhere, he actually accused Scare of relying on faith instead of facts, because that's the only way Price can conceive of someone thinking the resurrection is true. But he is also trying to persuade the audience by putting everyone into two camps, smart people and stupid people. If you're smart like Price, you'll agree with him and deny the resurrection. If you're superstitious like Scare and believe things based on what you want to be true rather than what you think actually is true, you'll think Jesus rose from the dead. However, one could easily turn this right back around on Price and say, he's the one avoiding the evidence, which can only stem from his dogmatic commitment to a predetermined conclusion. Psychological explanations can cut both ways. I could say, Price obviously chose to leave Christianity and deny the resurrection, not because he found the evidence unconvincing, but because he simply preferred not to believe in an absolute right and wrong, or in a literal hell, or because he saw how vacuous and subjective much of evangelicalism truly is. Would I be right if I said that? I don't know. But I have just as much to go on as does Price when he guesses at Christians' motives for believing in Jesus. Scare did a good job here of saying, and of demonstrating, that we can approach this topic outside the realm of faith without dependence on an inerrant or inspired Bible. That's the Lutheran position, and I would say it's the Apostles' position. We don't, like our Calvinist friends, start with presuppositions about what God is like, or what his word consists of, or about coherent worldviews. Rather, we start with the person of Jesus and build upward, examine his claims, examine his resurrection, examine the texts that record these things, Jesus is a historical figure. So let's see what we know about him using the standard methods and procedures a historian would use when investigating any figure from ancient history. This avoids circular reasoning, saying the Bible is God's word because it says it's God's word. This avoids a fundamentalist approach to the text, ignoring everything scholarship has to say if it disagrees with your beliefs. And this avoids appealing to your own personal religious experience your liver shiver, as evidence that you know Christianity is true. One of the main things that Dr. Price came back to time and time again was this argument uh, that the texts were just interpolations. Um, and, and one place he does this uh, is when a caller uh, calls in and, and presses him on, on 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Price said, that, no, this is, this is just, uh, just uh, a statement of belief. This is a creed. It's not an account of... Of, of history, and the, and the caller cited him and said, "Hey, wait a minute. Uh, even if it is a, a statement of belief, uh, doesn't it 
isn't it also a fact? Isn't it also citing historical data? Uh, and this was Dr. Price's response. Well, it, it seems to me it's not a presentation of evidence of anything. He says, this is what we preach, that uh, they died according to the scripture and so on, rose from the dead, they're seen by this and that. This is not presented as evidence for a creed. This is the, the, the creed. It's, it's not like corroboration or anything. It's like saying the Nicene Creed is evidence about Jesus. The whole question is, is this true? And no evidence is presented there. It's just a statement of affirmations. In fact, it's uh, several of them combined, I think. But uh, it, it simply isn't evidence any more than the Apostles' Creed is evidence for the Apostles' Creed. It's a statement of beliefs. Mark, what do you make of Dr. Price's uh, consistent argument of going back to these texts or just interpolations? Yeah, the issue of interpolations came up a lot in the debate. Um, now, just to be clear for your listeners, um, an interpolation occurs when someone introduces new material to previously existing material. Uh, it can be done by the author or by a later editor or by someone else. Uh, now, Price claims that 1 Corinthians 15, especially verses 3 to 8, have been added to Paul's original text. Uh, there are, as usual, <laughs> quite a few problems with this claim from Price. Uh, first of all, there is absolutely no tangible evidence that supports this. The earliest copy we have of 1 Corinthians is from the 2nd century, and it contains these verses. Nor is there any indication that they were added, as though they were crammed into the text or set off from the text in a margin or anything like that. Uh, what is more, the other oldest copies of 1 Corinthians come from different textual traditions, including the, including the Byzantine, Alexandrian, and Western text types. And they all have the same material. So what this means is, of the manuscripts we actually have, manuscripts that were copied independently from each other, there is no reason to think 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8 is an interpolation. Um, now there's also the issue of Paul's letters being copied and widely distributed early on. They were quoted by many, many church fathers, including early ones like Clement of Rome and Ignatius and Polycarp. Um, this widespread knowledge of 1 Corinthians makes Price's position difficult. Anyone attempting to introduce an interpolation into the traditions would face an uphill battle because so many other churches had their own uncontaminated manuscripts. As a result, non-Pauline additions to the text would have been quickly identified as such. Uh, plus, there's the fact that Ignatius, and he's writing around the year 105 or so, uh, actually quotes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 and 9. And that's part of the section that Price says is an interpolation. Now, you can always say, well, wait, that's still 50 years after Paul's death. Um, someone could have slipped something in during that period, don't you think? Well, it's possible, but again, is it probable? Lack of evidence cannot become its own form of evidence. If you can show me an earlier version of 1 Corinthians 15 that has this part omitted, I'll have to reconsider. But until then, you're merely speculating. And that is how most interpolations in the Bible are identified, actually. Um, it's merely an examination of literary style, of vocabulary, uh, sensing what appears to be the smoothest way an author would have said something, um, and then dismissing parts that look like they interrupt the flow of the argument or the structure or something. Uh, this is not a science. It's an art. And it's a fairly subjective art at that. Um, now... You're, you're asking, uh, or you're playing choice clips there, so my answers are long-winded, but I'm going to keep going. Um, there's another early reference to the disputed passage, uh, and around 135 or so, the heretic Marcion cited the entire disputed passage, although he deleted one uh, or two letters, or I guess um, in Greek one word, um, from one of the verses. But um, this is an early attestation, but more than that, it's a hostile attestation. If Marcion had any reason to doubt a passage that so strongly affirmed uh, this tradition about Christ, Paul's reliance on a tradition from Jewish Christianity and a reference to Paul as the least of all the apostles, all of which ran counter to Marcion's own version of Christianity, Marcion would have chopped it out as he did so many other verses of Paul's letters. The passage must have been well attested to escape Marcion's scalpel. Moreover, um, writing within about 20 to 30 years of each other in different locations with different theologies, 
There's no way that Ignatius and Marcion relied on the same manuscript tradition for 1 Corinthians. It's also improbable that Marcion's version of 1 Corinthians is the source of the interpolation, given the hostility with which his version of the New Testament was received. Uh, more than that, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, uh, you have technical language of the rabbis and Pharisees that lets us know that this is a technical passing on of oral tradition. The language in reference uh, is, it talks about delivering what had been received. And according to the, um, I'm sorry, according to scholars, Paul discloses that the doctrines of Christianity were received and passed on using a Greek translation of these words that are technical in Phariseeism, meaning, um, who's more likely to employ language like this? A former Pharisee, renowned for his education and the ways of rabbis, or a late second century Gentile interloper? The answer is fairly obvious, I think. A former Pharisee is more likely to employ technical language of a Pharisee, uh, and given the shortage of rabbi Christian scribes in the late second and early third century, the best explanation is that Paul actually authored this passage. Um, and then to the, the last part that you mentioned about price, um, he, you know, this is just a short comment because it doesn't take much, but Price thinks that there is no way a creed can contain facts. When he was asked why not, he just repeats himself, saying creeds don't contain evidence. They don't contain facts. They are merely faith statements. And here we see how Price is excluding facts and knowable history from anything that he defines as a statement of faith. This is a telling admission from Price, and he has clearly revealed his biases. In Price's thinking, there is a necessary bifurcation between facts and faith. The two simply cannot overlap. So then, it's no wonder that he concludes that Jesus' resurrection didn't happen because people believed it as part of their religious faith. This is a hopelessly flawed argument, but it's not the only one, as we've seen, that Price uses. Well, that's about a 35-minute uh, response to a two-hour debate. Not an easy thing to do. Uh, thanks, Mark, for uh, for being on the program to to, to serve us uh, with that response. Thank you for having me, Evan. Mark Pearson got a Master's of Arts degree in Reformation Theology from Concordia University in Irvine and a uh, just completed the Master's of Divinity program at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Table Talk Radio for staying with us for the extra innings. Uh, again, tell your friends about this response uh, to the debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead?, uh, that was found on our website at tabletalkradio.org. See, see you next time on Table Talk Radio.